Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. I'm your host, Alex Burkett, and we have an amazing show for you today. But first, if you're new to the program, make sure you follow, subscribe, and share these episodes on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and any social media sites that you use. We want to be able to bring this program to everyone so they can rise to their challenge. Joining me today he is a former gladiator in the UK known as ACE, and he's currently the creator of ACE Active, a charity organization that works with kids to give them the tools and knowledge they need to succeed and be able to become active, learn nutrition skills, and learn life skills. His name is Warren Furman. Each week, we have a quick fire challenge. This week's quick fire challenge is being a person of integrity doesn't mean being perfect. It means being authentic. So think about in your life, what principles do you live on? Are you trustworthy, respectful, honest, loyal? Think about those and how does that make an impact in your life? And while you're listening to the interview with Warren, think about what this quote means in his life. What does integrity mean to him? So sit back and relax. Enjoy the rise to the challenge of Warren Furman. Please welcome my guest at this time. He's known as the Gospel Gladiator, formerly known as Ace. It's Warren Furman. How are you doing today, Warren? I'm doing fantastic, Alex. Thank you. Absolutely fantastic. Well, thank you for taking this opportunity to come onto the show. Um, for guests that appear, we kind of go on the journey throughout their experience and show the different obstacles they've overcome to rise to the challenge. And getting yep. to know your story was very inspiring as you're a person that many look up to, including myself. And hearing about the way that a show has transitioned to you into what you do now is just motivating for people to learn about. And I wanted to get to know more about it. So with each of my guests, we just start right at the beginning. So when you were growing up, what kind of things were you involved in and passionate about? Uh, I didn't come from a sporting background, um, and my dad, my dad wasn't sporty at all. In fact, he was just a hard worker, Alex. He was a roof tiler, third most dangerous job you can do. Very honest man. And um, watching him growing up, uh, I used to get frustrated because he was very honest. He was no good in business. People, he was a great roofer. You know, he had a passion for what he did, so he was sought after. But we never really had any money, so. Um, Growing up was a little bit of a struggle, in all honesty. I had four brothers, um, but we didn't really get up to a lot. I had a little BMX, I remember, a GT from Santa Ana, California. <laughs> and uh, but I was too—I wasn't a risk taker, so I, I got—I got named as the poser. I was quite a shy kid. I haven't told anyone this. This feels like therapy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd pedal around on this GT um, uh, BMX with these Skyway white mag wheels on it. And, um, and people would shout, Poser, because I come from a little town near London uh, in Essex called Harlow. And it's a new town, so a bit of a project, really, 60,000 people all thrown together, uh, you know, and so to be somebody there, really, um, you had to sort of get into fights. So it was a bit of a, bit of a dangerous uh, scenario, really, because although, you know, you watch kids fighting and you think, oh, that's just kids fighting, 
when you're a kid, it don't feel like that. You're acutely aware of the danger, the danger that you're in. So it was a little bit of a, 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 a tough, a tough upbringing. And there was this strange thing that went on in Harlow that if somebody looked at you and um, and you looked away, you, that you were, you you were a wimp, you know. And so they call it bogging bizarrely. So you bogging at me? Yeah. What are you going to do about it? This this would be the scenario. And then you would either you'd either you'd either walk around with your head down looking at the floor everywhere you went, or you'd put your head up proudly and, and risk having a fight wherever you went. So it was um, it was a volatile upbringing in a rough area, and it just seemed that in Harlow, everybody was a roof tiler as well because we were the outskirts of London. So there was a big call for builders and roofers. Um, so it was a, it was a little bit rough. Not a lot of time for sports. When you say that you were shy as a kid, did that? have an effect on your self-confidence growing up? Like, were you able to meet people, become friends, or it was kind of a challenge in a way? No, it was, um, I was, it, it was, it was tough because um, my dad was a bit draconian, you know, it, he was a disciplinarian. Um, and so at school I was, I was shy. And because I had um, brothers, you know, kids across to each other. So we'd find a feature on each other's face and then we'd just rip into that, you know. And so um, they used to call me loads of names and you take it to heart. So so I was shy. In fact, I was painfully shy and I was a real skinny kid. Um, so I got bullied a bit at school and so I hated school consequently. And also I didn't know, I didn't know then, but I know now that I have attention deficit disorder. And that, of course, that wasn't diagnosed. It wasn't a thing then. So I just struggled and although I was, I wasn't stupid. I just couldn't seem to learn anything. I'd just go rogue, you know, and you'll probably find that in this interview. You'll ask me a question. I've probably done already. <laughs> you'll ask me a question and you'll think, well, he's got a bit left field with this. <laughs> Can I have oh, an yeah. answer, please? <laughs> anyway, what was the question? <laughs> so growing up with your other brothers, were they able to support you in a way? Or was it just more like you were on your own and you had a... Like you said, well, I think, I think because my dad ruled with an iron fist, he had to really. Um, so he would, you know, show us the back of his hand and it was painful. Um, uh, and, he, and so whenever we fought each other, those boys would fight, we'd end up getting a good idea off dad. So we just didn't fight. And so strangely, although we would, you know, we'd wait till dad's gone out and then we'd wrestle, we never punched each other, each other in the face or these things. There was a real... There was a boundary that we just didn't cross. And I'll never forget my first day at secondary school, walking into the playground and someone saying to me, do you want to fight? And I was like, uh, yeah. And I thought that we'd, end, we'd wrestle because I thought, well, I can't back down. I'm in the middle of a playground. So I was like, um, yeah, okay then. And I remember the utter shock as he punched me straight clean in the face, right Ooh. on the nose. Ooh. And my nose exploded and I was laid on my back and I could taste blood. And I started to cry because I was like, man, this is painful. Um, so, so I was, I was shocked that, you know, out in the world, it's a, it's a tough place to be. So I think with these, uh, these experiences combined, I was like, I can't carry on like this. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I need to do something. <laughs> I mean, definitely at a young age, you're not, a kid's not going to know what to do in that situation. Like they're not, like their parents aren't there. So they're going to think, okay, whatever I do, I guess it's the right choice. And it definitely nowadays you have the whole social media aspect and they see this on one video oh i have to be like this or they're like their favorite character so i have to get like i'm gonna be like a superhero so i think 
definitely a lot of kids can relate in your situation with how they take on those like a fight or something I know when I was younger it was I was bullied but I kind of was like okay I'm just gonna leave like I don't want to be near anyone and as I get older I kind of have to be like I'm me for who I am. If someone's not going to like me for that, I just have to deal with it. But I'd rather be friends with the people that I want to be friends with. Yeah, and it's a tough one because, you know, I I grew up in a compassless culture. There's no doubt about it. You know, there was no need for a God. So morality, where do we get our morality from? And so if if dad's not there or dad's absent and you've got to work things out for yourself, you end up making some real spurious choices and um, I was just listening to the news this morning over here they're talking about coronavirus obviously and the statistics I found quite alarming really they said uh, something like I think it was 50% of, of people in England don't trust the government with the advice they're giving on coronavirus and one fifth said they think it's a conspiracy and I was like man we really are in lost times and so if you don't you know if your morality is not placed somewhere that it should be or if there's no moral compass for you and there's no trust in your heart and you've got youtube uh, not youtube you've got the internet you know you can end up all over the place trying to work out what's right and what's wrong and i think i think that's what was that was what was difficult for me like i say growing up in in a compassless culture mum and dad didn't believe in um in a deity you know didn't believe in any god because we had a brother that died and that and they said there can't be a god Otherwise, your baby brother wouldn't have died. So that made sense. So, you know, left to our own devices, we make all our own decisions. So I was like, right, this is, if there's no God, this is a dog-eat-dog world. It's mm-hmm. eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And trouble is, if I keep going out and getting punched on the nose and people starting on me and I have to stare at the floor everywhere I walk, I'm never going to get anywhere in life. So it's kill or be killed, isn't it? You know, survival of the fish. So I was like, I need to do something. And of course, on the television at that time and in the movies, it was all... Arnold Schwarzenegger and um, and Sylvester Stallone. You know, you've got Stallone going out there, you know, picked on, but he takes on the whole world single-handedly. And I was yeah. like, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, I want to be him. <laughs> exactly. And so then you've got Schwarzenegger, the highest paid movie star in history. And as far as I could see, he hadn't been to any acting schools. <laughs> um, but he, he, had, he had some big muscles and a, and, a, and a personality. And I thought, you know, if I could just look like that, people are not going to pick on me so they become my idols you know and uh and i really believe that you know if we don't i believe that we all worship we will worship something and if we don't know god we'll find something to fill that gap and so i worshiped and that's i suppose that's why i call it idolizing idolatry so i idol idolized arnold schwarzenegger and sylvester stallone and i tell you what it worked when i started lifting the weights people stopped picking on me when they see you benching a few hundred pounds and your arms are bigger than theirs, people think twice and think, actually, if I punch him in the face, he might get me in a headlock and never <laughs> let go. <laughs> and, uh, and even my brothers, you know, they, when, I, when I started lifting the weights, um, I, was, I, could, I started to overpower them, you know, rather than them overpowering me. So, um, so that, that, that paid off. And, that, you know, it's a bit like your Superman movie, isn't it? You know, it's, you, know you, you think to yourself, well, I know that if I just put my pants on outside my trousers, I'm not going to get superpowers but if i get to the gym i might be like superman and so that's what i did Alex, and it worked when did you start lifting weights was it during your like uh, growing up or high i think i don't know yeah they call it high school I think, 
Yeah, I think I was I was fantasizing to look like my heroes for for a lot of years before I actually picked up the weights, and then I think I was um, I was buying a lot of the you know the weeder products online, and they, no, it weren't online at that time. I think it was I'd have to order it, um, but um, you know, and I got like the plastic weights set in the garden and stuff, and I go down to the shed, and then we didn't have any money, and so I used to sneak into the local sports centre gym. I found a way at the squash courts that they'd leave open because it got so hot in the squash court. So I'd just climb a fence, go in the squash court. So I must have been quite young. I would probably say 12 or 13, something like that. And um, and used the gym until they found me and then kicked me out. And so that's uh, and so that's how it started. But I started seeing results straight away. You know, it's um, and, I, and I learned quickly that pain is game. You know, I thought, actually, if I can put my body through some punishment, it responds to that and it grows. So uh, I was hooked then. And of course, I started to look like my idol. So I was like, "Yeah, this is this is the way forward." And my dad really worried about me at that point because he was like, "You know, all your brothers are going to be roofers. You're going to be a roofer." I'm like, "Dad, I can't be a roofer. I hate that job. We've never got any money. It's, as soon as it rains, we're skinned because you're self-employed." And he, he he got offended by that. And he had some great sayings, and one of them was, "Skills pay the bills." And he was, I didn't know at the time. I thought that he didn't like me, but the reality was, is he was in fear because all my brothers were now subservient you know they were going to work with him in the school holidays and stuff and i had just photographs of you know big posters of schwarzenegger on the wall and stuff and he's like this is a dream you're deluding yourself you can't get on the television you're never, not going to look like him they have their life we have ours wake up son and he said to me if you don't get a job by the time you're 16 i'm kicking you out of this house because i'm not going to enable you to be a bum when he told you that did it kind of like motivated you to get to the gym or try to prove something to him that you were able to do what you wanted to do? Not really. I just think the alternative, I think I'd say my dad, you know, he, he was an intelligent fellow and he was, he was, he was passionate fellow and an honest fellow. And yet his life was such a struggle, you know? So when he'd say, you know, oh, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, secret to happiness is work. Is work. And I'm thinking these sayings, a lot of them don't add up. You know, you can't, you're telling me that you're happy. The only time you're happy, it's like the Titanic round here. You, you, you party at the weekend, but you don't see that you're heading for an iceberg. The only time mum and dad were happy was when the weekend came and they could sit down with a glass of wine, watch their favourite shows and stuff. But I could see where that's going to lead. You know, mum and dad were smokers as well. And of course, when my brother died as well, you know, start getting prescribed prescriptive medications. You mix them together at the weekends. I could see all this was going wrong. So... I'd look at my dad in the end and just think, you can't give me any advice. You know, he gives me some great sayings. I used to, there's one I used to love and I still like, which is anything that consumes without producing will fail. And I could see that. I could see that. I thought that makes perfect sense. You look to nature, anything that, that you know, takes without giving fails. And, um, and of course, that's what I was doing in the end, Alex, because as my brothers are all going out to work and money's tight, I'm drinking all the milk out of the fridge, consuming that, eating all the chickens, eating all the tuna. He's coming home saying, you're consuming without producing, so you might be booted out before you're 16 because you're a complete loser. All your brothers, are, look at the state of your brothers. They've all got dirty hands, which is clean money. They're out there earning a crust, and you're in here just sponging and taking from us. So that made a lot of sense, And um, but there was no going back for me. I just could not do the roofing. It was such and dangerous. You know, I remember falling off a ladder, falling through the roof, Backs always hurting, freezing cold in the winter. It was hideous, 
hideous. So I definitely can under when my house was hit by a tornado, we had to do the shingles uh, and everything on the roof. And I think I was like in high school, so like sixteen. And my dad's like, "Can you come on the roof and help me?" And I'm like, "You've got to be kidding me!" No. <laughs> and I told like after, so I did it um, just because I just wanted to prove something to him. Then I told my mom, and she thought I was crazy, but. Yeah. Heights never is now, I'm not afraid of it, um, just because I experienced something like that. When you were yeah. growing up, what did you want to be? Like, what was your career path? So that was it for me. Like I said, because I knew academia was not going to be a way forward for me, I knew I wouldn't be able to secure, because I couldn't I couldn't finish anything. That's a, a, a symptom to attention deficit disorder. I could start well, but never finish. So I knew I weren't going to get the exams. You know, couple that with the fact that I had the pressure at home being threatened to be kicked out so I knew there was no chance of college so other than an academic route or becoming a roofer the options are very very slim so I just chose movie star <laughs> I'm gonna have to just be a movie star <laughs> and uh, so um, it was all or nothing then you know and so it was all my time in the gym and I think it took me a good few years um, of not being I don't believe I was deluded actually at this point I had no idea show business is a business the clues in the name i suppose um but i also had no idea that sport there is no real sport of bodybuilding i mean this is going to sound controversial um there's no real sport of bodybuilding without anabolic steroids and i didn't know that so i didn't know that you know to look like my the mood i didn't know at that point because there's no internet that schwarzenegger had taken steroids i didn't know that you know um uh, stallone had and stuff and so i'm like it took me years of eating Joe Wader's mega blocks and protein powders and all these things. And all I ever did was make me fart. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mr. Wader. I never looked like Schwarzenegger after eating. <laughs> and so um, it, that came as a shock to me. But unfortunately for me, I've been booted out of the house at that point. So I found myself officially homeless. However, um, the Young Women's Christian Association, the YWCA, put me up. So although I was homeless on paper, I was in a hostel, but it was at that point that uh, a, a bodybuilder said to me, you know, you'd be really, you'd look really good if you, if you um, competed. And I was like, uh, yeah, but I'm not big enough. He said, well, what are you taking? I was like, well, what do you mean? He said, you've got to be kidding me. And I was like, no, I've never taken, he said, no, listen, you need to wake up now, the world's your oyster. If you really have never taken any drugs, you need to take anabolic steroids, anabolic steroids now because your body will react so well to them. And that's it. And and it dawned on me that actually I've been I've been believing the hype. And of course, you know, everything has an agenda. There's a whole business there. You know, there's only the elite handful that managed to get to this size because of the commitment and the sacrifice that it, that it, that it means. And of course, the sacrifice is taking drugs and stuff. Um, and the rest really are just trying at the weekend. You know, it's like hobby bodybuilders and stuff. So. Um, so yes, yeah, so I decided to start to, to, to buy some steroids about that point. But again, at that point, Alex, I thought my dad must have been right. You know, I'm a, such a loser now. I'm homeless. I'm living in the YWCA. Um, I, you know, I have no money. Margaret Thatcher bought in the poll tax, so that means everybody had to pay this tax. So not only did I have no money, I'm, I was getting hooked up for the poll tax. That's it's ridiculous. I just cannot survive. So I was sinking quick. So I had nothing left to lose. Uh, but I've got to say, you know, putting a, an inch and a half, two-inch needle into your leg full of oil, it really, there's nothing more layman than that. It's like I am such, I'm officially what Dad said I was going to be, a bum. Um, but I've got to say, it was after doing that that everything changed because 
you know, I started to look superhuman pretty much overnight. And, uh, and people started to look at me and say, wow, you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. And can you imagine to me, I was like, yeah. <laughs> that probably <laughs> made you proud. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, uh, and, uh, and um, you know, we, we, I, I touched on the subject of God earlier. I got to a point where I was so full of myself that I couldn't be hungry for God because I believe, you know, I used to idolize now all of a sudden People were idolizing me. I thought, wow, this is it. I've, you know, I've made it. It was all about sacrifice. The bigger the risk, the bigger the payoff. Mm -hmm. Taking the risk and it's paying off. So I thought I'd cracked it. Did you find success in the bodybuilding or were you able to find jobs in show business before you found Gladiators? Well, as luck would have it, um, you know, I, 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 I was disciplined and committed to bodybuilding, but I could see it was very competitive. And I could see that, you know, to actually to actually go and do, show, put a pair of speedos on and stand in front of hundreds of people going up and down the country. It was a bit of a, it was a bit of a cult sport, really. You know, a very, very tiny minority really got in here with it. Most people sort of died trying. And so I thought, well, I've got to be able to make a better living than being a bodybuilder because that short lip. And I started to notice... You had to ramp up the drugs if you wanted to compete. So not only did you have to take steroids to, to blow yourself up, you had to take diuretics to slim yourself down and get rid of the water and stuff and fat burners. And I thought, I'm just going to end up rattling. Like, I don't want to take drugs. I'm just, I was never comfortable with that, Alex. And, um, and, you know, after all these years of looking after myself, trying to eat the right vitamins and the right diet, to suddenly be reducing it to just, you know, pills and steroids, I was like, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So I thought, right, okay. I started to see that bodybuilders were dropping early as well, you know, dying young. And I thought, right, okay, I do not want to go down the, the route of a professional bodybuilder. Uh, and also, there was a little bit of morality there, I think, because I thought, I don't want tons and tons of people following me as a bodybuilder saying, look what, look how big I've got, drinking milk and eating bananas. It's just not fair, is it? Because <laughs> you know, ultimately, you're selling a lie, aren't you? And I'm like, yeah. I don't want to be that person. This is, you know, I'm... I'm pimping people for business if I go down that road. I'd rather tell, tell people the truth and say, and I noticed that as soon as I started taking roids, people say what you're on, what you're on. And as soon as you say, I try and be honest to begin with, I'd say, oh, Decadurablin, and, and they go, oh, roided, roided, and write off any of your hard work. So, so in the end, you don't want to tell them, so you go, I'm not on anything. And they go, liar, he's a liar, he's on drugs. And so it's, you, you end up in this murky world. You know? So um, I just thought, if I can get onto TV, and like I say, because Schwarzenegger was the top of the tree and these things, um, the, the TV show from uh, America, the uh, American Gladiators, we just bought the rights to it, London Weekend Television, so they started to bring that here. And uh, there was another show on called Man Oh Man, where it was a bodybuilder, and it was a dating show, and, they, and these skinny fellas had to do what the bodybuilder was yeah. doing, and I thought, I'm going to need to just get onto the telly somehow. So uh, actually, I wrote into Gladiators, and it was... Um, I was extremely lucky because they invited me to a fitness tryout and I got the job from them. As far as I was concerned, it was my stepping stone to Hollywood. I thought, right, next thing's Hollywood. Did you watch the show before you wrote into it or were you just, I'm just going to take the risk and go for it without any knowledge of it? No, so Gladiators was the first reality TV show. You know, everything's reality TV. You know, everybody yeah. wants their five minutes of fame. So Gladiators was really the first of that in that anybody could write in, anybody who was fit enough could write in to go against the formidable Gladiators. And I thought, well, I don't want that five minutes of fame, you know, competing against these Gladiators. Surely the job you want is to be a Gladiator. 
And so I wrote in to the address where they said to write in to be a contestant, but I just sent in a couple of pictures. So I'm not, and it was really full on stuff. I was like, I am the best in the world. I'll beat anyone. <laughs> I am born to be a gladiator. I sent all this stuff thinking they're going to think, who's this clown? <laughs> Those but, are fighting uh, words right there. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but they, um, but they, they, they ate it up and said, "Yeah, get yourself in here." And I was saying, I, I remember getting the tube up. They were so embarrassed. I was like, oh, I remember what I wrote in that <laughs> Was this in? I think it started in 1992. Was it at, at that time, or was it years in that you wrote in? Yeah, no, I was later than that. So, um, uh, you started I, I think in 96. I put the show in 96, 95, 96. Yeah, yeah. And, and interestingly enough. You know, they say everything is subject to the law of impermanence. You, me, we're all dying. And it's no different for TV. So they gave that show a lifespan of three years. And I joined, I think it was in the fifth year or sixth year. So so I knew that I was on a bit of a gravy train and it was going to stop soon. Um, and so so it, it already outran its lifespan. People started to get bored of it. They were trying to bring out new games, new gladiators, you know, different ideas. But it was really, it really ran its course. Well, you mentioned the running its course because I know the American version, it was kind of going downhill from when you guys had it because I think their last season was 97. I don't even know. Yeah. It was yeah. before me. So <laughs> uh, so I know that the, the, the amount of time you guys had, it was a huge success. When you got the call to come and try out what was that process like? What were you thinking being in the room, like around everyone? Well, uh, it was actually, it was horrible. And, um, and and the reason it was horrible is because I've been on a casting before. I can't remember what it was for, but I've been on a casting. And I remember you essentially go and line yourself up and compare yourself to lots of people who are potentially better than you. Of course, I didn't like that. By now, my ego had grown as well. You know, I was like, I thought I was great. So to suddenly be put in with 60 other fellas who were bigger and better than me, it was horrible. I mean, I was the last thing I wanted to be was like anybody else. I was desperate to be an individual. And so I was, I was petrified of that. And it really dented my ego. But secondly, all these people were better than me. They were bigger than me. They were better looking than me. And they looked stronger than me. You know, you had professional bodybuilders there and stuff. And I, I believe to this day what got me the gig was... I noticed that, you know, they gave us all these giant pugil sticks, these like giant cotton buds to beat each other up with. And, and the producers must have loved it. They just put us all in a room and sort of said, fuck. <laughs> and it was horrible. You know, when you've got like a 19 stone man with 23 inch arms clonking you over the head with a great, and they look like they're soft, but they're not. They're not. <laughs> it's instant headache material and you're half passing out. And, you know, but what I noticed straight away is that everybody was so desperate for this gig that they were just like savages, you know, they were literally, it's like, it was like a room full of lions trying to savage each other. And I thought, if it's a Saturday night TV show and it's a family show, I'm going to try and do this with a smile on my face because nobody else is doing that. And so it's very difficult too with, when you've got an 18 stone blowing you over the Everest thing, though, to smile. <laughs> I could just <laughs> but it worked. <laughs> I could just imagine you guys just hitting each other and be like, um, I'm going to pass. I don't want to even... It was, it was brutal, but it's like anything, you know, you do have to face your fears and, and, and sometimes it's the shadow is a lot bigger than the thing itself. And so as much as seeing these guys clubbing each other, once you was in there, it wasn't that, it was the scary parts watching. It's like people, I think people think of that with boxing and UFC, oh, it's so, they're so brave. But actually when you put yourself in a situation like that, 
it's like being punched hard in the face. It, to watch it happen, it's brutal and it's sickening. But when it happens to you, you don't really see anything because your adrenaline's going. It's just a white flash, and then you open your eyes and you lay on the floor and you think, how do I get here? <laughs> it's not actually that bad. <laughs> you just got to face some fears and get on with it because a lot of people won't, you know. So, <laughs> not that I recommend being punched in the face. <laughs> really. Now I'm going to pass that. <laughs> <laughs> so, after the tryouts, after you get in the call, like, was it right away or is it like weeks? Did you have to wait? No, so um, literally, I was living in the YWCA, and the next day, a, um, a stretched um, Mercedes with blacked out windows pulled up into the car park, um, took me to Heathrow Airport, where I literally had a carrier bag full of my belongings, flew me first class Air Mauritius to Mauritius to the Gladiators training camp, um, uh, where I was filming for the next month. Uh, we filmed little clips for the show there. We did. We laid on the beach of a day. They, well, they said it was a training camp. It was more dating the female glads, really. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was like I died and gone to heaven. It was uh, incredible. I was like the, you know, the beautiful Indian Ocean, beautiful women laid around you. Um, free food, free everything that you wanted. They were giving me envelopes every day called per DMs. I'm like, what's this? It's just full of Mauritius money that I could spend. I was like, this is incredible. And... Um, and then the first uh, uh, shows that I did was uh, Wembley Arena. So he did some live shows in Wembley Arena. And so I, I literally, I, it was like I died in God's heaven. So at that point, you know, I really, I remember laying on the beach in Mauritius, looking up on a, on a clear night at the stars and, uh, and, and just really appreciated creation. You know, the, the beautiful warm sand beneath me, the gentle lapping of the waves, the just beauty of the heavens. And I thought, if there is a God, I've been told in my life there is a God, if there is, he must love me. I must be doing something <laughs> right. Cause who has a life like this? Who has a life like this? You know, so, um, yeah, phenomenal, Alex. It really was. When you got to the location, did you already have your name already picked out? Or was it not until that show started and that's when you became Ace? Well, they told you that, that you could think of some names. But if I said to you now, Alex, right, okay, you're a gladiator, so you've got that job, you know that you're going to tell it now, think of some names. It's almost impossible because you're like, well, and I, so I started to go to the other gladiators for advice, and they'd, early on they suggested Ace to me. I had a cousin called Ace, and I thought it was a rubbish name because I'm like, you know, you've got Warrior, and you've got all these big tough names, and the Wolfman, and then Ace. It's like, well, it doesn't really strike fear into your heart, does it? I thought, it's not going to give me a psychological edge. So um, I was very much uh, against it to begin with. I was like, no, I'm not sure about that. And the producer, Nigel Lithgow and Ken Warwick, they're a big producer in America now. Mm -hmm. uh, they were like trying to sell it to me. And I couldn't understand why. No, I was saying it means top trump. It means leader of the pack. It means, you know, you're the best in the pack. And I'm like, I'm not sure. And then uh, I remember Ken Warwick saying to me, McVitie's who make the chocolate biscuits are bringing out an Ace biscuit. And uh, if you take the name Ace, it comes with, I can't remember how much, something like 10,000 pounds worth of advertising. And um, I said, I love the name Ace. I love that <laughs> name Ace. So he, he had to reveal to me. So I was, I was, I sold out. And do you know what? I should have took the advice because I remember um, other gladiators saying to me, don't sell out commercially. Show business is a business. So really, you're going to show this ideal person, this super gladiator, but it's not the real you. And so you really want to appeal to as many companies as you can to send you free stuff. So be careful when you choose your name. And I, and I, remember, it's, I remember saying to it was Mark Griffin, and he was Action Man now. 
he worked with Hasbro and he was doing movies in America. So he'd done the Gladiator bit and he'd flown to LA and there he was and he was living the dream, you know. And I remember him saying to me, um, you know, don't sell out. And he was really adamant. And I said, well, what are you moaning about? Your Gladiator name is, is superb. And he said, well, yeah, well, in England it is, but in America it's not. And I was like, well, why not? And his Gladiator name was Trojan. <laughs> yup. <laughs> so, so you can imagine, I don't have to explain that one to we you. We don't think of a gladiator name when we think of that in America, <laughs> no, sadly. No, well, in England, it doesn't mean that. Much. And so, but I did sell out because my bit is end. They didn't tell me this. You know, I took the money and thought, this is easy money. They're just giving me free money. And all I've got to do is be named after their new biscuit. Anyway, when the advert came out, the slogan for the biscuit was Ace, the incredibly thick chocolate biscuit. That didn't help a guy who speaks like me from Essex who can't even pronounce the, you know what I mean? I couldn't even say thick. I was like, thick, yeah, I'm the thick biscuit. So uh, I sold out commercially, Alex, I'm afraid. It's like without it, they discontinued their biscuits a little while later. (laughs) Whoever came up with that slogan did not think of the right thing for that. Well, I think they knew exactly what they were doing. And I I think they thought an Essex boy from, uh, you know what I mean, from Arlo, who can't even say the word thick, It'll be perfect for this. But at that time, you were just doing what you thought was correct. You thought maybe, okay, I, they're recommending this, so you had to believe in them. Over time, did you kind of think, okay, I have to now make decisions on my own, and I can listen to advice, but I have to do what's best for me? Um, no, I think because I had, because I had um, experienced... Uh, so much success at that point and become so conceited like I said I was so full of myself um, and I was the world was telling me I was a success now by then I was buying property I had lovely cars all of a sudden women were queuing up to date me Um, I was like well I'm a winner I am the epitome of success this is a celebrity culture and I'm the top of the tree and it don't get any better than this you know not only you know do I have the money and the women and everything else but I have the looks, I have the body. I mean, it don't get any better than this. And so nobody, frankly, could tell me anything. You know, I, I, and I was, I was so self-righteous. I, you know, I was freely dishing out of advice. And the thing is, when you're a celebrity and people are traders of information in this world, you know, and they want to be associated with success. So people are giving you stuff. People are telling you what you want to hear. There's nobody around you anymore in that situation who's going to tell you any truth. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I was quite lucky because my brothers are really down to earth, but they, they tried to tell me the truth. But again, because I was conceited, I was like, well, they must be jealous. So I need to keep them away from me. I need positive people around me, people who are blowing smoke up my backside. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So nobody could really tell you anything. But what I will say is that nobody had taught me the paradox of pleasure, which just means the more you get of something, the less it satisfies. And so, you know left to your own devices, they become your vices. And so these things that start off as as great and and satisfying start becoming um, detrimental to your health. You know, and I noticed with the show, there were so many highs, you know, to be in front of 16 million people, 10,000 people in the arena, and then to find yourself sat at home. You know what I mean? Or walking the dog, I was like, no, no, I need highs, I need highs. So the lows really come sweeping in. So you're looking for other ways of getting high. And when you're being invited to all of the top clubs, all the openings, everyone's giving you stuff for free. It's such a roller coaster. Um, that it, and it's so enticing that 
you don't even realize some of the decisions you're making, you know, and, um, and so a lot of them become started to become destructive. And, uh, and as a, as a person, like I say, nobody could really advise me. I was so full of myself that there wasn't room for anyone else. But what I will say is that once I was in show business and realized it was a business, I think my heart started to harden. Um, I started to get really cynical, you know, in that business, it's all red carpets and glitter and sparkly. Um, it's something far, far, far darker. And so, although they said, um, you know, uh, oh, good for you, this is great for you, darling. You'd have all the air kisses and all that. You'd feel the knife going in your back when you got the next job. And, uh, and I started to notice that a lot of the people who were really celebrated weren't who they said they were. Mm -hmm. you know, you'd read about, about them in the newspapers and magazines, but really the money and fame had really corrupted them and they were broken people. Uh, and, and, um, and, and really selling lies. A lot of it was selling lies. I was rewarded for selling lies. Newspapers, magazines would ring me up, we'll pay you this much money. What can you tell us? I've got nothing to tell you. Well, just make something up. I'm like, what is this? My dad is the most honest man I know hard-working man I can make what he can make I can make in an hour what he'll make in a month just by telling a pack of lies so I think my heart started to really question this you know am I is this real what's going on here you know and um you know I used to love Elvis Presley and stuff as well and I, and, and I just started to really think things through like hang on a minute these A-list Hollywood stars died miserably on drugs you marry Monroe's you know there's reams of them that seem to get to the top and and we're still following them now and they're dead. Mm -hmm. You know, they died miserably. And we're like, yeah, that's the epitome of success. And it's like, where does this really lead? Who am I following? And I started to notice that actually for me to keep this big body up that I've got, I'm going to have to carry on taking drugs. And I didn't want to do that. And I also noticed a real shallowness in what I was and what I'd become. I wasn't interested in anyone, anybody else or that. So I was just interested in me. And so meanwhile, you know, my brothers and friends had moved on and they'd settled down in families. They're having kids, starting their own businesses, security in a job. And when Gladiators ended, I was like crusted a clown. You know, I could just turn up in a in a lycra outfit with a stick and say, hey kids, here I am. <laughs> that was about it. And then hope someone was gonna pay me a couple of thousand quid for doing that. So I thought actually I'm becoming a joke. You know, this is uh, it's not what it's not what I thought it was gonna be. So my heart was really searching at that point. I knew that on the outside I looked successful. Everything looked right, but I knew inside I was spiritually bankrupt, bankrupt, um, and spiritually empty, actually, completely empty. So it started off feeling everything, but then nothing. On the show, they, you guys participated in a lot of games, some that were good, some that to a viewer were like, how did this come about? I know when I saw Pendulum for the first time, I'm like, okay, this is cool, but just I would get motion sickness probably just going back and forth. What games were your favorites and what were like challenging for you? Again, remember I said to you when I had the BMX and everyone called me Poser because, you know, this BMX was designed to do stunts on. So it was, you know, you had to be flash. But I wouldn't do any stunts. I remember trying to do one bunny up and I remember that Shimano pedal firing up hitting me in the shin so hard that I thought I'm never doing oh. another stunt on this. And so. It was really the same at Gladiators. The best Gladiators were the ones that took the biggest risks. Um, but I could tell people were getting seriously hurt on the show. We'd already had a broken neck by the time I'd started. I'd seen people screaming. And actually, I had a dream one night that a whole rig fell on top of me and the producer killed the producer. And I think that was a warning because 
I, whenever there was a risky game, I was really risk averse. I remember the um, Andrew Norgate, who was the organiser of the games, he would roster you what games you were playing. And so quite early on, the ones that I could see at the massive risk, I'd try and wiggle out because I'd think, actually, this is great that I'm on this show, but there's going, this show's going to end and I don't want to be in a wheelchair when it does. And I could see people already in wheelchairs, you know. So um, I always looked for the games that were high octane, that looked amazing on camera, but where you didn't have to risk breaking your back every time you played it. And so the best games for me were, were games at high, actually, the reason for that is there was always a net you could fall in, and the net's a nice thing to fall in, you know, because you don't you don't really fall on your head and all your body weight crashes on the top. And so Pendulum, the game you mentioned, was brilliant. And it might have looked difficult, but if you stayed near the top of the ball, you was fine. And so all you'd have to do is get your contestant to go underneath. As soon as he goes yeah. down there, you've got to pull him off there. Gravity's gonna do it for you. He's got two he's got two forces against him then. I don't know why, because every time they go underneath, I'm like, you're having all your body weight holding on and it's just gonna make you tired. And you guys just come down, grab them, or they just fall off and you win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was and because obviously we had more experience on there, they got to play the games, but we had more experience. So I knew that, that was an easy payday. I'd get the glory because <laughs> like I say you've got two forces. You've got you and then you you've got gravity against them as well, because I'm not going down there. You can go down there. I'll chase you down there. And of course, what else I didn't realize, there was a big screen on the right. That This thing was like 100 foot square. And if I didn't know where he was, I'd just look at the screen and see exactly where he was and then Ooh. just go wandering down after. <laughs> so that was a great game to play. And also um, Hang Tuck. So that was a series of rings where you're chasing that person. Now, again, the advantage is massive for the gladiator there because we had little tricks of the trade, you know, I'd grab the rig before we even started and I'd yank on it and it'd shake every ring in that rig. <laughs> and so they'd already been, uh, their legs would be shaking before they even got on it. And, and when you're chasing somebody, it's so much easier than it is to be chased because again, you've got that, oh, I don't know which way to go, you're panicking, whereas it doesn't really matter what I do, it's gonna be. So that was another easy game. The tough ones really were dual because when you've got that stick, your weight can work against you, especially if they're, you know, they're, they're wiry. You've got a lot of good athletes with these contestants. And, uh, you know, if they duck, you, your own weight can take yourself off. And also, if they knock you off, the most humiliating thing in the world, that, and it's not good for a big inflated ego, that at all. Yep. So that was, I, I avoided that. And games like Powerball, you know, again, you'd get hurt in games like that. And the worst one, though, I've got to say by far, was Skytrax, which is like a giant scale suspended 60 foot in the air you're upside down you've got to chase somebody disorientated upside down what the the viewing audience don't realize is you've been hanging up there for 40 minutes before Ooh. your neck's killing your abs are killing you've been laid on this cherry picker that's pumping out diesel fumes for the last half hour and then as you're running around your feet are getting trod on someone's kicking you in the face you're spinning all over the shop so the odds were against us in that one one of the series in, this is going to sound, I literally just watched this episode. In 1998, you were in a gauntlet match with a contender named Cass, who he went past you, you took your pugil stick, you threw him backwards, and then he tried to get in a fight with you in the gauntlet. In something like those in the events where you guys are really going at it, the adrenaline's pumping, how do you control yourself to not start getting physical? With the contenders uh, well again it's I, I realized from the off what they need there is controlled aggression you know if you're a hothead you're not going to stay in that job and to be fair we did have a couple and they didn't last long so your uh, contract was renewed yearly 
So if something was out of line and they saw, saw that you could potentially cause problems in that family show, you were history anyway. So, you know, I remember, you know, getting my nose broken in the gauntlet and, and stuff like that. But I know that contestant is on his way out anyway. I didn't need to get revenge at that point. And actually, it's going to mean an easy couple of days for me because I'm getting paid whatever. I'll just go and lay in the hospital on a broken nose. He's not a broken back, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so it's just part of the, part of the job, isn't it? So you guys were able to, because I know some gliders, they would, I don't know if it was for the show, but I know like Wolf would get mad, but you don't know if that's a character or if he was really upset with everything. So, Well, Wolf's, Wolf's admitted this now. He said, because he was, I mean, he was 47 when I was 22 on that show. So he, he, had, he had age against him, you know, because you have that, there is a big, big difference between chasing someone young and, you know, so he realized that he ain't gonna be able to keep up with the others. And so he knew he, knew he needed a gimmick. And uh, you know, you see it on the reality shows that people love to hate, don't they? If they find a baddie, they're like, ooh, they just wanna boo somebody over yeah. here. I don't think you have it in America, but we have pantomimes and they're like such a Christmas tradition. People just love booing someone. Isn't that funny about human nature? We love to hate someone. It's sad, um, but I know, not wrong. I know. You're not wrong about that. Exactly, well, well, Wolf, um, Wolf became that person. And actually, because of that, Wolf became bigger than the show. It's everybody, you know, we'd get personal appearances, but everyone resented Wolf because he got all the personal appearances. You know, we'd all be sat at home scratching our heads and everyone booking Wolf. <laughs> Meanwhile, he's making a fortune and we're all like, well, Wolf's cleaning up here. This is no good. But um, but it was it was an act, you know, Wolf never, he was a bit of a bad loser, to be honest, but he was never violent. He was never. But it was definitely entertaining. I mean, it's all shows nowadays they're always trying to find that entertainment factor and something that fans can catch on to and his character was definitely one of those things that people were able to catch on to and brought the huge following that you guys had yeah yeah and people want drama and they knew with wolf they're going to get some drama you know they knew that he's going to end up rolling around and fighting and they want that everyone's you know buying for that so he was a showman there's no doubt about it so you talked about uh, at the beginning where you were traveling to the location to do the training camp. You had the opportunity to do international ones with the Ashes, the Springbok. What was it like going against other people from other countries? Well, it was obviously great for us because we got to travel, you know, and we got the best of travel. Not only I remember like, the, the trip I went to South Africa, you know, we were doing it was bizarre, a lot of it. You know, I remember being taken up by Victoria Falls on a helium balloon strapped chain to the side of it. And I'm like, this is surreal in my gladiator costume. <laughs> um, you know, so you, you'd get involved in all these strange things because a lot of it was promotion. And then we were doing stuff for um, South African Airways. And so, you know, again, it's this show business as always. But because of that, you went to all the best places, you know, met lots of interesting people, had lots of interesting experiences, you know, white water rafting down the Zambezi and just loads of stuff. So travel is always broadens your horizons, always opens your mind up. It's always nice, isn't it? So uh, that was another bonus with the show, you know, just getting to do, to do those things, a real blessing. So I'm gonna fast forward in time a little bit. You came back for the Legends game or the, when the revival in 2008, 2009 happened. Coming from years past, what was it like coming back to the show and being a contender and seeing what the show has become in the new format it was in? Well, a couple of feelings on that, really. I think, um, I think the first one would be that the show, 
firstly, if you're going to redo a show, it's got to be bigger and better. Mm-hmm. And in the 90s was the golden age of television, way before your time. It was, <laughs> there was just like four or five channels. And, 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 and London Weekend Television, who produced Gladiator, has had all the money because they were the only ones allowed to do product placement. So they had all the advertising revenue. So they could throw endless budgets at a show. But when I came back and they re, you know, such a successful show, years later, Sky One bought the rights and said, we're going to do it bigger and better. TV had changed so much. So anybody now can make a TV show. You or I can pick up our mobile, get good enough quality, we can buy a speaker and these things. So, so all of a sudden, there's such a, a supply of people able to make a show. There's not the budgets anymore for that. And so they threw everything but the kitchen sink at this show, but it was, it was in comparison, pathetic, really. You know, it was done in a TV studio. Um, they'd, they'd overfought it, so it wasn't... Um, it, there was no sort of uh, natural prog- progression into what it was going to be, you know. It didn't organically find its feet, if you know what I mean. Everybody... I know it's all the new young gladiators were, we're all dressed in silver now and grey and they had like names like Atlas and you know it's this strange name and um, they all tried to be baddies mm-hmm. they're like oh I'm going to get him next and I'm going to beat him up and I'm like this is ridiculous it's so staged and it's funny America in America wrestling flies doesn't it because you're flamboyant yeah. but here we're, we're quite stiff upper lips and if, if we feel someone's not being down the line we're like oh, this is ridiculous, as if this would happen. This is bizarre. And then people just switch <laughs> off. And that's really what was happening there. You know, it was scripted, it was false. And I was saying to the lads, look, just be your own, you know, just don't be phony on there because people smell it with their eyes shut. No one wants to buy into a lie. Um, uh, but it didn't, the show flopped. But I, I tell you, I think what really got me was being called a legend. You know, when you're old, when you're up, when you're young, and you, you always hear grown-ups saying, "Oh, you know, live your life while you're young; it passes in a flash." You're like, "What are you talking about? You've been around for eons. It don't pass in a flash." Because when you're young, life goes really slow. But to suddenly, you know, I was only like 30 when I went back to legend. To be called a legend, you know, it was like I felt like a dinosaur, and I was, <laughs> I was like, I'm like an old man from some old show years ago. And I've got to say, when I went against Dwayne Ladejo, who was an Olympian silver medalist sprinter I thought yeah I'll have a chance he was like he was like it was like I was standing still when I was running at full pelt trying to chase this guy it was like ridiculous and I was like no way no wonder boxers retired like 30 odd I've got nothing left in the tank here I thought I was doing all right so a big change and a big wake-up call as well but it was a little bit sad in that you know it was I wanted it to be a success for them but I could see it wasn't but it wasn't going to be well, you mentioned wrestling in America, and for the American revival, they brought in Hulk Hogan to be the host. And I know the media, and we're all like, this doesn't make sense. Like, he's this over-top persona, and it just doesn't feel like, for our host, like Mike Adamley or Eureka Johnson, who just had that natural chemistry on the yeah. show. And it had the overtop people. It kind of just looked like they were a bunch of actors, wannabe actors, that yeah. they were here for their five minutes of fame. And mm-hmm. I think it just showed that you don't do it over the top. I mean, they had you guys fighting over water, which, I mean, that was that was a little crazy, but, I mean, hey, they were trying to do something to catch the attention. I actually, people. that bit was nice. Oh, you liked it? Fell, oh, yeah, when you fell onto pads, you inevitably get hurt. 
one way or another. You fall on someone, it's only going to take someone's shin to it, you in the face. And, but when you fall into water, and it was lovely and warm, actually. I used to think, well, <laughs> no, win or lose, and we get a nice swim out of this. <laughs> Unless you're doing a belly flap, and then you're like, oh, yeah. I'll, I'll be in pain for a good minute, then I'll be fine for the next event. I'm good, <laughs> don't worry. Exactly. So with your gladiator experience, transitioning after that, did you learn something about yourself? Um, you talked about things that you learned about yourself with your heart being hardened and all that, but what were some other things you learned about yourself from your experience on gladiators and that you took in transition to what you do today? Um, well, I learned a lot, actually. I think, I think what really blessed me about, about that show is that I believed um, that I believed the modern day lie that, our, that we're put on this earth to pursue happiness and life's all about us. So here I am, given my heart's de desire, you know, my life's all about myself and, and to just get what you want and be the top of the pack, the leader of the pack. So I think the most precious thing that I learned was that that's a lie. The pursuit of happiness is a hoax and, and, and possessions and positions will never bring happiness. In actual fact, it brings distance from other people because no one can keep up with that and you don't have real people around you. So I think what was great for me is a lot of people die trying to find their identity. You know, and so here I am saying, this is the identity I choose. I want to be Superman. I want to be called the ace and I want to be, I had achieved all that and seen that it doesn't bring happiness. Actually, it brings emptiness. And so I think that was the, probably the most valuable experience that that show brought me, especially in life, you know, where you, I still, I was still quite young, so I still had the rest of my life to go. So it was a bit like, that's a very, very valuable lesson. You know, a lot of people, you see them in the shops scratching on, you know, they haven't got enough money to pay for their, their, their shopping and they're compromising something in their shop to buy lottery tickets because they believe that if they get that, that money, that's going to answer all their problems. But actually, uh, there's nothing more damaging than unearned money. You know, if you get wealth that you haven't actually earned, um, you know, and you've come by by gambling like that, if you, you, you've only got to look at the, um, the history books, you know, winning these great big sums usually does more damage than good for families, people's families break down and all these things. So that was, I think that was the most valuable lesson that I learned. And, and also, actually, you know, most people, I learned that most people show an ideal and not the real. You know, it's a bit like your social media today, and it. You know, we 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 show the ideal five percent of our life or two percent, mm -hmm. but the ninety-eight percent is a struggle, really. You know, a lot of people are living lives of quiet desperation, but we're desperate to show others that we've got it all together. And um, I spoke to the head of human resources at um, Virgin Atlantic, and I said, "What's the number one reason that people are off work at the moment?" And I thought he'd say, "You know, you know, the common cold or whatever else." And he said, um, "FOMO." Like, what's that? He said, fear of missing out, brought on by social media. And I'm like, yeah, but these are beautiful people working in a glamorous industry. He said, no, no, he said, because everyone's looking at each other's social media thinking I'm such a loser because they've got it right. And we don't realize that as, as we give all this content away, it's for business. You know, people are making money off the back of all this. And, you know, when I was on the TV, Alex, I got paid for giving my image. I got paid for telling stories. Now the young people are giving all this away. For free. The biggest content, the biggest content producer now on the planet is Facebook, and they produce no content of their own because you and I give it all to them. Yeah. <laughs> and so as they're capitalising and making all this money out of this, it's depressing us. 
Now I go on, there's a load of adverts. So give me some more money so you can reach some people. And I'm like, what? You've already got my life. How much more do you need? (laughs) Yeah, I feel social media is playing more of a negative effect right now. I've never been. I mean, I didn't get Instagram until like way years later because I'm like, I'm not a person that just wants to showcase my life to everyone. If someone wants to ask me, they can ask me and I'll tell them. Not confident of what of who I am as a person, but I kind of now try to use social media as more of a motivational tool. Um, I love posting motivational quotes, things that can inspire people, um, doing these interviews, being able to post those just to share some good and positivity in the world nowadays. I think you're exactly right. And, um, and I love that saying, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. And yes, you can just switch off and say, I'm not playing that game. Or you can say, actually, I can see what the problem is. I want to be part of a solution. And I, I think that what you're doing is part of a solution. You know, if you're, going, if you're going out there and you're a positive force, and actually you're giving people the tools and opening their eyes to what it is that's bringing depression on, I mean, all power to you. That's exactly what we need. So talk about the transition after Gladiators to what you do today and how that has played a big impact in your life. Uh, well, I um, I think I said to you, didn't I, that on the outside, I had everything. But on the inside, I was spiritually bankrupt. And that's not just, you know, a lot of that was the, ex- the, the you know, the experience of being fame, the, you know, the easy money, the easy women, everything that comes with it. And so I asked the bigger questions at quite a young age, you know, I, because because I'd seen that, that wealth, uh, position and possession doesn't bring happiness. Well, it does bring happiness, actually, but I never realized that happiness is temporal. Your happiness depends on something good happening to you. But I started to realize that actually money and position doesn't bring joy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and it doesn't. It, it, you know, I was just spiritually empty inside, and I knew that I knew that um, I didn't really fit anymore. So I went on a real spiritual search, and I asked the bigger questions: What is the real purpose? You know, when I laid on that beach in Mauritius and looked at the heavens, it was like, wow, if there's a god, he must love me. Now I find myself out of a job. You know, no skills to pay the bills. I'm like, God, what happened? Did I fall out your favor? What, you know, where is this? If you're a god and you're there, you know, reveal yourself to me. But like I say, because I had a brother that died, mum and dad said there was no God. So I started looking in all the places I shouldn't really. And I started to look at all the different religions, all the different teachings, all the esoteric teachings, all the different Eastern teachings. And I'd look anywhere but a Bible or anywhere but Jesus. Because if you think, you know, it's a bit like now, we look at The Rock, don't we? And everyone's like, wow, look at Dwayne Johnson. He looks so buff. He's in the movies. I want to look like him. He's got big white teeth and a great <laughs> eyebrow. That man's a winner, and he's funny. When he's got Kevin Hart with him, he's funny. <laughs> no, he's funny anyway. So, um, so you, you know, he's the guy that you want to be like. And um, so, when when that's been your idol, and that's going to be, you know, your your optimum. That's where you believe you want to get your happiness from, and you realise actually that's empty. But I want to be a macho man, and then culture is telling you, well, Jesus is someone that floated around a few thousand years ago crying when he saw evil things, you know, looked like a wimp, and then ends up getting nailed to a cross and dying miserably, brutally murdered. It's like, well, why, why on earth would I follow him? And so I completely, and, and like I say, uh, you know, today's um, celebrity culture pretty much says that, doesn't it? It says, you know, that's, this, is, this is religion and, and teachings are a, a 
really a crutch for cripples. If you can't make it on your own, you fall into some sort of religion where you're, where you're accepted. And um, people had told me that, that Jesus was good news. And I used to just say, we well, ain't no good news to me. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. Thank you very much. I'm doing very good. Thank you. But um, it was after, I think, a two-year spiritual search, doing all the different, you know, I remember looking at Buddhism, you know, you're, you're a human being, so not a human doing, so just be. You know, I'd sit in the garden with my eyes shut in some weird pose, and I'd be thinking, well, I'm, not, I'm consuming it without producing. How am I going to change the world? Sat here, you know, and then I looked at Buddha, and, and I thought to myself, well, he was born into a few quid, wasn't he? And, uh, you know, he was all right. He could afford to sit under a tree and eat everything he wanted. I can't afford to do that. Um, and I could see, you know, look at the dexterity of our bodies that we've been given. We're meant to be doing something, not just mm -hmm. being. Of course we're meant to be doing something. So I think it was a slow realisation as I looked at all the different religions that said earn it or learn it, that they all pointed to Jesus. Even if they, the religion wasn't about them, they all pointed to Jesus' teachings. They all pointed to Jesus. And, and so I was invited on what's called an Alpha course. Uh, six years ago, and it was on that Alpha course. Bear in mind, if somebody had said it was about Christianity, I wouldn't have gone. So I just thought, anything to do with religion, earn it or learn it, and these things, I'm not interested. Religion start wars, people kill each other, not interested. Um, but it was on there that uh, it was a Christian course. I didn't realize to begin with, and when I found out in the first verse of Christian course, I was like, oh, no, here we go. Um, and then and then someone explained the gospel to me and you know it, it, it occurred to me that for you know 44 years of my life nobody had told me the gospel they told me Jesus was good news but never said why he was good news they never said that that death was a victory they never said that his birth is the most important event in human history they never said that the year I was living in you know if you believe it's 2020 now you're living your life in accordance to the birth of Jesus Christ. You're living your life by this man. That's how important it is. And I was like, right. And then this bit shocked me. And then they said, uh, but you're separated from God. I was like, what? Hang on a minute. If God loves me and if God created me, why on earth would I be separated from him? That doesn't make any sense. And they were like, well, it makes complete sense. God is love and he's unconditional love. And for love to be unconditional has to be invited in. So he will leave you to your own devices. And as I said to you before, my devices became my vices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and just as we were talking there on the online, we've got to watch our devices don't yeah. become literally our, our vices. Um, and it was in that that I was like, oh, right. So you have to respond to the gospel. So you might have thought that you've known God. You might have prayed before, but there's a reason he hasn't been answering. Because you haven't actually considered who he is and you haven't counted the cost. And you haven't really invited him in your life yet. And that really come to it. I was a bit offended to begin with. And I was a bit, what do you mean? I'm not, I'm a good person. I'm a good, I'm a, when they said to me, you know, you've got to say sorry for your sins if you want to know. I thought, I'm, not, I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. And they were like, you never told a lie. Well, yeah. And you, and, you know, and so, and then started explaining that, you know, you, what repentance is. You know, if you've just chased anything in the world looking for your identity, that's, what sin is, really, trying to derive your identity anywhere but God. And I thought sin was God was this cosmic cop that wants to beat me up for smoking or chasing women. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand what sin is. Sin is just I. It's you serving yourself. You've gone your own way. You're born to be a blessing. You haven't realized it. So all repentance mean, when Jesus turned up, he said, believe and repent, turn back to me. 
and you'll have eternity and I'll forgive you all your sins and I'll fill you with my power. You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. I just, it was so good to, so good to be true. My heart, I think, as well, Alex, was so hardened at that point. I just couldn't wrap my head around that. I was like, I've been, you know, been spending fortunes on all this spiritual searching. I bought all the atheist books, you know, and they're all telling me billions of years ago, once you was a monkey, then you was a, you was a frog, then you was a monkey, then you was you. And they take 20 quid out of your pocket, but they don't really give you any answers, you know? And I'm like, and I started to look at even things like Da Vinci Code. I'd read anything apart from the inspired word of God, which is obviously the Bible. Um, so it was, it, I think it was really, you know, it was a man's man, a macho man coming to the end of myself, submitting to a force that I could not see, tangibly see right now, was very difficult. You know, I was like, well, there's no evidence. And they're like, you've got to be kidding. You need to examine the evidence. Why? Go and look at the Codex Sinaiticus, the first Bible ever written. It's in the British Library, nearly 2,000 years old. And what's in this Bible in front of you is in there. Got John's Gospels in there. We're not, we're not saying go back billions of years and check out the dinosaurs. We're saying go on God's watch. Look at what God's, God can show you the evidence. It's all around you. And if you, don't, if you don't believe in stuff that you can't see, stick your finger in that plug socket. There's an energy in there that you, you can't see, but when you're on fire, you realize it's really there. <laughs> Not that I suggest putting your finger in a plug socket, but that's how it is with God. You know, it, it's there, but because it's a spiritual dimension, um, I couldn't see it and I was cut off from it and nobody had told me that. So I think the clear explanation of the gospel um, was just mind-blowing for me. And like I say, and then getting past myself, they said to me in the end, the biggest block between you and God, Warren, is you. It's actually you because you can't conceive of it. Your ego is just too inflated you, and, and your heart's so hard and you've examined the evidence, you believe that Jesus who he said he was. I mean, I was absolutely blown away, Alex, when, you know, as a gladiator, I started to look at the original story of gladiators and where they come from. Do you know the actual gladiators came from a blood sacrifice? Mm-hmm. So if somebody had a few quid or a nobleman in, you know, the times of antiquity died, they were acutely aware they needed a blood sacrifice. Yes, they had lots of different gods. They'd already wandered way, way away from their creator. But they were really aware they needed a sacrifice. Do you know what they do? They'd get a couple of slaves. They'd put a knife in each one of their hands and say, right, fine. And they'd scrap at the funeral, and the dead one would get thrown in the hole with the nobleman. And they'd say, oh, there you go. You can't get a better sacrifice than that, another human. So they'd throw him in, and the other one would go free. That's where the actual gladiators came from, the recognition of a blood sacrifice. And so I followed the history books a bit more, and then realized it was Jesus turning up a couple of thousand years ago, right in the middle of gladiatorial times, where they were crucifying people in the amphitheaters and said, what are you doing? It's not eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Why are you murdering each other? Listen, I come with a new covenant. You've got to forgive each other. It's not for you to seek revenge. There's power in forgiveness. And they were like, you need to shut your mouth. And he's like, and they're like, who do you think you are? And he's like, well, I'm God. They're like, no, you're not God. You've got to come into our buildings to find God. And we say big prayers. And he's like, no, 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 I'm God. And they're like, no, you need to shut your mouth or we're going to kill you. And he's like, well, good, good luck with that one. And I think what was fascinating for me is the fact that, you know, they nail him to a cross in the middle of that Roman Empire, you know, and he gets a thing above his head saying, the king of the Jews. Then he rises again, as he said he would. And within 300 years, the most affluent, progressive empire on the world, the Roman Empire, converts to Christianity. You know, the very, the very people that, are, and I'm like, Man, how have I been ignoring this? 
And Jesus is the reason they shut down the gladiatorial games. You know, you can go to the Colosseum in Rome now. These amphitheaters were all over the world. They were appearing everywhere. It was um, an emperor that saw a monk jump in between a couple of gladiators. He said, no, no, we've been taught. God's revealed himself. He said, no, we've got to forgive each other. This barbaric killing each other is not what he wants. This monk gets killed. It was on them teachings. It was on that sacrifice that the emperor said, I'm putting an end to all gladiator games today. It's never going to happen again. We're not doing that. And that was Jesus' teachings. And I'm like, no way. That is incredible, isn't it? I just learned something new today. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, this is you, know, you know, there's lots of religions out there that come along and they say, you've got to earn it and you've got to learn it. And I say to people, listen, I can tell you about what's happened. I can tell you about the Holy Spirit that's filled me up. I can tell you about the new life I can have. I can tell you about the spiritual dimension that I now live in that I knew nothing of before. But I'm not talking you into anything. I'm not here to recruit anybody for anything. But as somebody explained the gospel to me, and it transformed my life and blessed me and gave me a not only a great life now, but a glorious life after this one. Not only are my sins being cleared, not only am I filled with the Holy Spirit and in a personal relationship with God, I can share that with, with somebody and it will transform their life. But it's not me that opens blind eyes, it's God. And so if somebody doesn't want to hear it, I say, listen, this is not a religion. I'm not trying to push this on anybody. I'm invited here. I have no dog in the fight. Nobody's paying me to be here. I'll tell you because I consider it a blessing to be able to tell you that, because that's why Jesus came. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what we're created to do. And that's when you move into your divine purpose, when you realize, actually, this life is just a tiny little snippet of what we've got, the glorious future we've got in front of us into eternity, you know. So, um, you know, I think, it's a, I think it's an absolute no-brainer, but I just think that with the busyness of life, with the tyranny of life, a lot of people... I mean, there's so many religions and half-truths and traps out there that people are absolutely, absolutely petrified making any commitment to any deity or any, you know. So, and I think the other thing is if, if the world's giving you what you want, you know, if you've got a good position and, you know, you're in a, you've got a good job and you're paying the mortgage and you're like, well, I, why do I need a guy? You know, I've got what I want here. But the trouble with that is you're thinking finite. And uh, there will be a day where it's all stripped from underneath you and you'll make no sense of that, you know, and that'll be a horrible tragedy if you don't realise there's a bigger plan. And, uh, and actually death can be a victory because it's been conquered on the cross by Jesus Christ. You mentioned a good point where people are, sometimes in the industry you're in, they kind of like, they're like forcing it on you. And some people are like, I don't want anything to do with it. But you brought up a great point that you're just taking from your experience that what it inspired you and what knowledge you gained and you're just trying to bring it to people and just share it with them you're not trying to force it to them and it kind of just shows how like social media plays in that fact where people are just forcing information and you see the reports of like negative things and they're just like you don't see much good and so you're trying to bring good to a subject that maybe sometimes gets some negativity at times well, you know, um, I read a book by, uh, it's an old book now, I think it's Andrew Carniage, and he, he studied the most successful people in the world. He studied presidents and these things. And um, as he studied them, um, he, he was trying to glean, you know, what makes somebody successful. Uh, and and the, the number one attribute above being born into great wealth, above, above great looks, above everything else, the number one attribute to have a successful life. What do you think that is? Any, any guess? I would have no idea. 
Okay, so it's, and it came as a bit of a shock to me, it's integrity. The number one attribute to be a success in the world is integrity. And what shocked me with that is that, you know, if you are buying into a, 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 a democratic capital, capitalistic culture, which is, you know, that's what we're living in, it rewards greed, which means you and I can work together, but if push comes to shove, I'll stitch you up in business, put a knife in your back and say, don't, oh, sorry, Alex, it's only business. You know, so that almost makes it acceptable, like the mafia. You know, mm -hmm. shoot someone in the head, sorry, it's only business. And it lacks, it lacks integrity. But what I've found is that, you know, when I'm competing and striving, because of the human heart, it has its own desires. And you and I, as friends, we're the best will in the world. We'll get on to a certain extent, but when we're chasing the same woman, the same house, We'll tread on each other because we'll and we'll justify it by saying, "Well, we've got to put food on the family table." And this is our war start, you know. But what I found is that when I came to Christ, as soon as my eyes were open up and I was in a relationship with the living God of the Bible, I suddenly started to get an integrity that I didn't have before. And so, because I understand now I'm born to be a blessing, I will do what's best for the other person and not me. Now, the world says, that's madness. You'll end up with nothing. But what happens is God honors that and he blesses that. And so I find that you can't outgive God. So the world sees it as an integrity. It says, oh, Warren's a nice person. I have to constantly um, uh, correct him. So I'm not actually. I was on a TV show a couple of weeks ago called The Big Question. And it was an atheist show, you know, and they were like, there was all these different religions arguing, blah, 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 and everyone telling you what, which religion was right. And then they asked me, and I said, well, I'm not a good person. And I think they were shocked at that. But, well, but you, 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 you met Jesus. You met Jesus, did you? But it's, it's the Holy Spirit. It's the power of God that comes in me and takes that hard heart and shows me a different way. And it's the Holy Spirit that gives me the power to do it and the trust to work within that. And so I have a, I have a peace and a joy that I never had before, not a temporal happiness, a joy and a knowing in who I am and my divine purpose. And that takes away a lot of striving. It literally liberates you. But it also gives you that all-important quality of integrity. People know they can trust me because they know that I'm not of myself anymore. So it's not like, oh, yeah, well, Warren's going to do what's best for Warren. Because, because I mean, I, make no mistake about it, Alex, I fall regular. I'm still human. I'm still in the flesh. Mm -hmm. But what, what, we, what we really need is that integrity. And I think people are starting to see that you can put your faith in anything, it will let you down. You can put your faith in politics. Who trusts politicians now? People put their faith in banking, their money. That, that fails. They put it in their knowledge in academia. That fails. You know, what can you put your faith? Put their faith in their parents or their partners, and then that splits up and breaks down, and they get really hurt. But the only thing you can put your faith in really is God, because we're born to be in a relationship with Him. So if we're not, we're always going to be spiritually empty, and while that happens, we're always going to be searching. See, and so. That's really what I've lived, and that's really what I've seen. And um, I'm so grateful to God for it, really, because he knew my heart. He knew I'm not a risk taker. He saw me on that BMX, wouldn't go past the bunny hop. He knew that I had to examine the evidence. He knew I had to have lived this lavish lifestyle before I would really trust him. And um, so I'm really pleased about that because, you know, um, so many people die trying. And the reality is the most important decision you can make right now is, is, to, is to trust God. It is the difference between life and death. You know, no one knows when that, when that trap door is going to open beneath them. And we decide that we want to fall into the loving arms of God or that we want to spend eternity without God. And I think a lot of people make that mistake. They think, oh, yeah, well, when I die, 
I don't know, and that's the end of it. And um, and that worries me at the moment, actually. I try not to go rogue on you, but with suicide at the moment, you know, people are like, I've just had such enough, I've come to the end of myself, this virus, I'm losing loved ones, I've got no job left, I just want to end it all and kill myself. But people don't realise that suicide is a is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. You know, most people that take their lives a week later that, that survived this hell would never, never have done that. And the reality is, it's not the end. We go into eternity. You know, and so to go into eternity after murdering yourself is not a, not a good option uh, at all. And it's clearly not God's plan on anyone's life. And he can give new life right now. And that's really what he wants to do. So there is an answer. Um, but sorry, I went a little bit rogue on you there. There was another point I didn't make, but I didn't make it. <laughs> no, it, you br- talking about that, it's kind of at a time where you kind of see who is there for you um, during this time. I know... I'm always trying to reach out to people to make sure that, like, if you can make an impact in their day for the short amount of time or one message, it kind of has that, not satisfaction, but a feel-good moment because you're trying to do anything you can to change someone's day to be positive. And I know with my work, we're always communicating with each other, just saying, how are you doing? Do you need anything? Do you want to chat? And we don't want to see suicide and all that happen for this temporary thing that's going to happen. So even going off on that topic, it pr- brings up a good point nowadays. Well, you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with communicating. We are individuals, independent individuals, but the trouble is in the world, they want you to be an independent individual because it's a consumer culture constantly, constantly selling to you. But the reality is we are born to be in communion with other people. Mm-hmm. And that's what a church is. We're also, you know, I was a bodybuilder, but I'm still a bodybuilder. We're meant to be building the body of Christ. That's what a church is. It's not necessarily a building. It's people coming together, as you were saying there, unconditionally blessing each other without compense. Not, I'm going to do you something, you've got to pay me for it. I'm unconditionally blessing. And that's what's really interesting for me about Christmas. You know, even before I knew Jesus, I loved Christmas. But you think why we love that is families coming together, blessing each other, giving gifts unconditionally, and that's where true joy comes from, family. It was God's idea that we can be growing together in a community, loving each other, born to be a blessing. And this is where real joy comes from. And I think it's no coincidence that's where we can get hurt the most as well because you're in a family and somebody betrays you in the family or you, you had expectations that were so high. And so you don't talk to someone for years and then it becomes your identity because you know, you're know you going on this pity party when someone's asking about you. And it's like all you need in this situation is forgiveness. You forgive, yeah. uh, you'll, be, you'll be amazed at what can happen with a little bit of forgiveness. Having grudges nowadays, it's not worth it. It's like I would rather be a person where I can forgive them and just be able to, if I'm in the same room with them, still be able to communicate. We don't have to be best of friends, but I still want to, I don't want to have that negative side to us. So forgiveness well, is definitely... Again, that's a, that's a kingdom principle. You know, you're born to be a blessing, and God honors that, you see. So the world would say, no, you've got to get revenge. Don't let someone get one over on you. You can't, you can't let that, otherwise everyone will get one over on you, and you're coming from a place of fear. But when you come from a place of love, it's completely different. You say, listen, because you're not trusting in your own, you're saying, okay, I'm going to forgive you because I love you enough to forgive you. And that's, that speaks a lot to somebody. God sees that, and he honors that. He's like, ah, that's my boy. I can work through this, you see. And, that's incredible, and that's the truth that I, I, you know, I didn't know any of this stuff until 
I spent half my life <laughs> striving and, you know, well to the success, but I was striving and desperate and I was just scared to death of being just like the next person, you know, because I just felt like I had to, you know, I had to be somebody bigger, better, faster and stronger. And then it's strange, you know, looking back that, um, you know, you can pump up your backside, you can pump up your biceps, your lips, cut your eyebrows off, put, paint some new ones on. The world will keep telling you, you're not good enough. Until you, until you deform yourself, Warren, until you take steroids and make your arms double the size they should be, put your body in a permanent state of injury, risk all your organs, put so much stress on them, I'll reward you with loads of money. That's what you'll get. Actually, you'll die young. Mm-hmm. Won't last very long. You know, the world will say you're not good enough, but God says, no, actually, you are, because I created you uniquely. You're a masterpiece. And no matter what you're calling it, your career is, I have a calling on your life. And watch where you'll go in your career if you're answering your calling at the same time. You'll have an integrity. You will have a a, a spiritual awareness that that you knew nothing of before because you've got God with you. I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) You talked about people telling you that you can't do anything. And I think with the show that you were on, a lot of people growing up were trying to find their inner gladiator because you guys were out there injured and you guys were still doing what you were supposed to be doing those contenders David versus Goliath and still trying to do the best that they can and I know I use that in my days is I'm just trying to do what I can to make an impact any way I can and show people that I have this attitude to get to the next place in my life and nothing's going to stop me Um, I was talking to a friend last night and he was talking about doing a podcast and I said, what's stopping you? And he said himself. And I go, why do you think that it's yourself? And he was talking about the confidence and not being able to find that theme that he wanted to do. And I go, it took me months to come up with the theme that I came up with and the vision. And after I started doing it, I enjoy it each time. So every interview I do, I enjoy it. Um, reaching out to you and being able to talk to you it's kind of like it's a lifetime opportunity that if this pandemic wasn't happening i don't know if i would ever have gotten this opportunity so great things can happen in any situation and it's how you take advantage of those situations and how do you move forward to make it happen So ending this interview, what does the future look like for you? What's What are some goals you want to accomplish in the upcoming months, years, days, weeks? Well, I think I think where I struggle to begin with is, like I say, you know, once I said a prayer and, uh, and submitted to God, um, I was a bit, and I think this might be a fleshly desire, really, I was a bit over-intrigued with the, with the power of the Holy Spirit. But just to put that into context, you know, um, the difference between knowing, you know, the living God of the Bible and the false God is really the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it says in the beginning of the Bible that the Holy Spirit hovered above the waters and it gets stuff done in this world. And so it moves where it wants, like the wind. And I got a little bit taken with that. I don't know if it's because I had this obsession with strength and being a bodybuilder and stuff, but I really... From an earth, you know, from first being being saved, I was like, where is the Holy Spirit now? What is it doing? Because wherever that's going, that's the power of God. And that's where I want to be. And I, and I use the analogy like a game of football, really, in that you can sit watching. If you think Jesus is the football, 
you can sit watching other people in the team chasing around the ball or you can sit in the outskirts, and a lot of what church can be can be sat in the audience, sort of watching. Oh, there's the Holy Spirit. Oh, look what he's done. Oh, that amazing. That great. Yeah, this is great. I'm great. I'm, I'm so pleased that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. I'm a bit like, yeah, well, that's great. We'll have the glorious eternity, but I want the great now as well. I want to see what's going on. What's the, where's the Holy Spirit really moving? Because we know the world's in the mess. We know the problems, but I know that Jesus is the solution to it. There's no doubt about it. So I'm like, I want to be where that Holy Spirit is moving. I know, and I know I need to be where Jesus is now. And when he ascended, he said, I'm going to send you power of the Holy Spirit so you can do what I did and more. And we're living in that golden age right now. And so from an early time, I was like, right, where's the Holy Spirit moving? And people thought I was a bit crazy. Like, oh, no, he's going to go a bit lunatic fringe, this one. He's so, you know, hell-bent on finding where the Holy Spirit's moving. And I remember I went on some missions with the Archbishop of York, John Sentimer and I kept, you know, we'd, we'd be out working in schools, telling the kids the gladiator story and stuff, going, you know, talking to people in churches and um, in, in streets. You know, we're a great, great British nation and we're returning to that rapidly. And um, I just kept bothering John Sentimer, you know, with um, where, the Holy Spirit, where's it moving? Where is it moving? He went, you can't see it. I'm like, I can't see it. Where is it? And he's like, just wait, relax and pray. And because I had this mindset of anything consuming without producing fails, I'm like, no, we've got to move. And then and, and I started realizing, hang on a minute, here's a bloke who lives in a massive palace. And he spends hours praying. <laughs> and he spends it because he waits on God to see where God's going to go next. So, so now with me, as opposed to setting goals, what I do is wait on the Holy Spirit. I try and be still to know God. So what I find is what's more important to me. And we saw Jesus doing it, you know, in the history books. It's retreating. And it's waiting and saying, okay, God, where are you in this? Jesus, you know, we're your hands and feet now. Where do you want us? Where, you know, and, and, and there's no doubt about it. Where that need is, where there's need is where Jesus is. And that's where he's going to send his Holy Spirit. And that's what I really like. That's what's really exciting. So at the moment, um, for the practicalities, um, I had to um, uh, found a charity, which is called Ace Active. Um, and we're getting out there and we're speaking to thousands and thousands of kids and we're getting we're getting kids back active in the year uh, with doing activities you know spend so much time on computers and that we're teaching them about you know eating what's grown out of the ground as opposed to the processed foods and we're also saying look kids the world's going to tell you that you're not good enough but you are god's created you you know we're not going to impose that we're not going to say come here and say a prayer with us right now but we're telling you that you are good enough and that you're created for a, for a, a purpose that's way beyond your wildest dreams. And I tell you what, what a, what a divine privilege that is. And in such a broken time, you know, where these kids are exposed to so much filth through their smartphones, you know, now a lot of them are getting addicted to the cure in secondary schools. You know, they're saying, oh, you, you know, all these kids are vaping. They're coming out of school with nicotine addictions. And I'm like, look, kids. That'll kill you quicker than heroin. It's more addictive nicotine. And it might taste like rainbow colors, but listen, it's another plan to get you to die young. And that's not what God's plan is. He don't want you to perish. So, so many opportunities. There's so much out there diverting people from life to death. Um, it's a mission field. It's an absolute mission field. So we get lots of opportunities. I think my, the biggest difficulty for me is we're getting opportunities uh, in other countries and I love traveling and stuff and to come back from Brazil this year to Rio de Janeiro but my heart really is for this nation so I think the, the most difficult challenge for me is staying yeah. staying put you know we've got 60 well, well, well how many people in this country 60 80 million 
people, all trying to find an answer to this coronavirus. Um, and the world won't give it, but God gives answers to pain, he gives answers to suffering, he makes perfect sense of all these things, and he gives hope in these times. So sky's the limit, really. It really is. I mean, uh, I'm really excited. I think we are in the most exciting time to be alive in human history. And uh, as my life was transformed by the gospel, I'll share that wherever I can share it, and uh, there's many, many opportunities. I've enjoyed uh, looking when you post on social media and like the video videos you create and like I think one of the letter you had a letter on there, um, and just being able to kind of get out of my comfort zone and learn about something new, um, and this opportunity um, learning about what you do with the ministry and all that it's kind of, it's been rewarding and. I find new things about myself, new things that I can search for in my daily life. The final thing I want to talk about is if someone's listening to this interview, what tips or messages or advice would you give them to rise to their challenge? Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head there. Something new. I think I, there's, there's, I mean, there's a lot of truth in, um, let's say, in life begins at the end of your comfort zone. You know, we are we are by nature people that want to stay in a little comfort zone, you know, and so if, if the world's giving you what you want or you're sat in your room and you've got food and these needs, but there's no life in that. You know, you really have to go out there and put yourself in uncomfortable situation. And there's, again, there's the old bodybuilding phrase, no pain, no gain. Mm-hmm. And it's true, and it's the same in the kingdom of God, you know. So in bodybuilding, I knew that if I weren't in pain in that gym, or the next day if my muscles weren't hurting, I wasn't developing, I wasn't growing. And it's exactly the same in the kingdom of God. If I'm not going somewhere that's painful to me, if I'm not going somewhere that's uncomfortable, I know that I'm not going to grow. I know that, you know, I'm not going to develop spiritually. And again, this is, as I said to you, with the world makes no sense of pain. It says, oh, I shouldn't be suffering. I shouldn't be having this. I shouldn't have this affliction or this disability. But God says... Um, I can make sense of that. And actually, I can turn this into a gain for you. And uh, and you're literally, you know, all you've got to do is give that to me and watch what happens, you know. So I really like that life begins at the end of your comfort zone. I think in, in, in the spirit of your podcast, challenge yourself today, you know. Look somewhere and actually follow your passion. And a lot of people say to me, especially people that are new to Christianity, they say to me, I've said this prayer and I feel different but I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. You know, what does God want me to be, to be doing? And so, I, you know, I sometimes use the analogy of, you know, as a bodybuilder, you know, you're, you're building a body now. So you're supposed to, you've been called in community with other people. We all must, always must be working with other people because this is where we get real uh, joy from. But what I would say is whatever your passions are, whatever your talents are, whatever you are good at, move in that direction. You know, even if it doesn't seem practical and people say, oh, no, you've got to get a job. You've got to... No, no, move where the passion is because that passion will fire you. So, whereas other people are falling, go, oh, this is too hard. Just, you have such a passion, you'll succeed in that. And again, flipping that into the kingdom of God, that's why you've been created. God has given you that, that desire in your heart because he's going to bless you in that area because he knows you're going to bless humanity in that area. So it's a no-brainer. So follow the passions, follow where the heart is, follow where the talent is and develop it. Don't let anything else stop that. Well, Warren, I want to thank you so much for this opportunity to talk to you about this, your journey, your experience. I've learned a lot, and I'll wake up at 4 o'clock in the morning to do this again uh, because it was so worth it. 
Um, Thank you so much for staying up late for me. I really appreciate it. I mean, I couldn't sleep because it's like, when do, when do you get to talk to a gladiator for once? <laughs> I mean, but I can't wait to see what you continue to do, your passion, just talking to you. I can see the passion that you have for what you do, and it's motivating. Um, to likewise, to, likewise. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready to see what's the next chapter and continue on with this podcast, but... I appreciate the time. I'll let you go. And God bless you, Alex. It's been my absolute pleasure. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you tune in to our Instagram. We have the Rise of the Challenge podcast on Instagram where you can get exclusive clips from all episodes. Remember, everyone has a rise to the challenge. Have a great day, everyone.